And turn over to Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 4. Lift our thoughts and our affections heavenward this morning, Father. We ask you that uh, they may find Christ, their only worthy object. In his name we ask. Amen. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read aloud if you would join me silently. Colossians 3, 1 through 4. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Amen. This is God's word. Jesus said on the cross, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Jesus spoke Aramaic much better than I can. But Jesus spoke Aramaic. Why did he speak Aramaic? It was. When the Jews were exiled to Babylon, and this may be a bit simplistic linguistically, but when the Jews were exiled to Babylon, the, the language of Babylon was Aramaic. And any culture that is taken out of its own culture and put in another one will, over a generation or two, uh, adapt to the new one. So they adapted Aramaic. And then when they went home, um, the Persians also spoke Aramaic, and they continued to speak Aramaic. Now, when they went into exile, they recognized the, the danger as the people of God of losing their identity as such. And one of the most interesting psalms, I think, in, in the Psalter is Psalm 137. And I just want to read a portion of it. This is uh, the expression of the exiled Judeans here. Uh, psalm 137, 1 through 6. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung our harps, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, my right hand, let it forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So that was the heart of the exiled Jews in Babylon. They did not want to forget Zion. They didn't want to forget their homeland. Now our text this morning reminds us that we are really in a very similar situation. As Christians, the Bible tells us that we are strangers and aliens, exiles in this world. Like, in, like, like Judah in exile, our hearts uh, long and yearn for Zion. They yearn for the homeland. But our thoughts and our affections and our activities easily as exiles can be quickly consumed by Babylon, by the land to which we are exiled, by this world. And the possibility exists that we even forget the homeland altogether, such that we become citizens of Babylon, citizens of this world. So I entitled this message, One Life 
Because I think the challenge most of us face is that in some sense we, we want to lead a, a double life. We want to have a foot in both worlds. We very dangerously bifurcate our lives living as kind of dual citizens. Our spiritual lives are in heaven and maybe our work and our family and our social lives are here on earth. Now I'm keenly and personally overwhelmingly aware of the allure of Babylon, the allure of the world. And she will call to us throughout the time of our stay here. And as long as we're in this body of death, we will uh, have to battle to resist her, her beauty and her call. But the call of God this morning is this. It is to live one life, not two lives. It is to live the life as a citizen of heaven, exiles here on earth. So my prayer this morning is that the Holy Spirit, by the word of Christ, directs our hearts toward heaven. um, And that we can learn more and more to live as citizens of heaven and exiles here on the earth. So I want to identify three ways in which Paul helps us to live out our, our heavenly citizenship in this land of our exile in the world. And the first is that we need to know our primary residence. We need to understand where our primary residence is. Something you'll hear at funerals oftentimes is that the person who who died hadn't really gone away. They had just made a change of address, right? You've heard that one before. And this is true, but in reality, if they were a Christian, that change of address took place before they died. This is because they died before they died. I'll explain that. There are a few themes in Scripture that we need to understand if the Bible is going to make sense. And one of those themes is the theme of union with Christ. The union of the believer to Christ by faith. That we're united to Christ by faith. When we receive and exercise faith, we are united to Christ such that we share in His life. We, when He died, we died with Him. When He was raised, we were raised. When He ascended into heaven... We ascended into heaven. That's why in, the, in verse 3 of our text this morning, Paul says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See that? You, if you're a Christian, you've died before you die. You've died with Christ. Living out our heavenly citizenship is not a matter of turning a new leaf or striving to make better decisions. It's a matter of dying. In Christ dying. The old man whose citizenship was in the world, he's passed away. His address has been changed. And like in the cheesy uh, funeral sense of the phrase, if you're a true believer, you have already died and gone to heaven. You have changed your address. This is why a life of fence straddling is such a contradiction. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6, 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So if we choose to leave one leg in the world of the old man, we're we're kind of like Israel in the wilderness who wanted to go back to Egypt. It's like volunteering to go back into slavery. 
that's something we've been liberated from. And not only have we died with Christ, but gloriously we have also been raised and ascended with Christ through our union with Him. So our life, he says, is hidden with Christ in God. Quite literally what he's saying is God has taken your life for safekeeping and he's, he's put it somewhere. And the location of that safe deposit box is Christ. Your life is hidden with Christ. And where is Christ? He says that Christ is ascended on high in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. That is where our life is with Christ, our one life. Verse 4 says it even stronger. It says that Christ is our life. So that's why we must pursue that that singular life. Because really we only have one life. Our our life in Christ. The the other life, the life of the lingering old man, is not life at all but, but death. And I think that's why Paul, why Paul cries out in, in Romans 7, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Elijah asked in 1 Kings, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. If Baal is God, follow Him. How long will we go limping between two different opinions? How long will we claim heaven as our homeland and live as citizens of the world? I want to urge you this morning to have a holy discontentment with the world. It's not your home. It's not our home. I lived in Denver on and off for five years, a couple years single, three years married, and, and Denver was never home. I'm a country boy. I'm from the mountains. This is home. I, I could never get settled there. I, I, I always wanted to go home. This world is not our home. And, and so we, we don't want to get too comfy here. If there's a coziness developing in your heart with the way of the world, if there's no yearning of your soul to be free of this place of bondage and no longing in your soul for the promised land, then I would call upon you to remember your homeland. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So the first step to living out our heavenly citizenship uh, during our exile is to know, to be aware of our primary residence. And our primary residence is in heaven. And not theoretically, hypothetically, or metaphorically, but really, actually, and currently, our home is in heaven with Christ. We have died, and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Understanding our primary residence is, is... Indeed, really our only viable, life-sustaining residence. And it changes the way we think and the way we live. Which is the second point I want to get to here. Is The second way we can learn to live out our heavenly citizenship during our exile is we need to begin to think like an exile. Think like an exile. I'll read verses 1 and 2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. 
Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. He says, if you have been raised, and it's not really a question for a believer, if you're, if you're truly a believer and united to Christ, you have been raised. So, if you have been raised with Christ, and Paul explains our being raised with Christ, if you want to go back and read it sometime in, in chapter 2 in more detail. But the imperative follows the indicative. The action flows from the truth. So now he's going to give us some commands, some actions. Seek and set your mind. Seek the things that are above. Set your mind on things that are above. How do we do that? How do we go about seeking the things that are above? What does that look like? Do we sell all of our earthly possessions, quit our jobs, give all of our money to the needy and kind of head to the desert for a mystical experience with God? Is that what it means to set our minds on things that are above? Many people have done that. Or perhaps we could adorn our house with angelic statues, pictures of saints who have gone into glory. Or maybe we should seek encounters from the other dimension. All of these things have been done in the name of setting our minds on things that are above and many more. Um, But let's take just some of the basic spheres of life as test cases. And and we don't even have to leave Colossians 3. Paul has given them to us already. Paul goes on to explain what he means by setting our minds on things that are above. So let's consider our work, our vocation. Paul says in Colossians 3, 22-24, Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So when you are seeking the things that are above, it's very simple. It, it appears in your work ethic. Our vocations are done unto the Lord. But when we undertake them to achieve financial success or social status in the world, our vocations are unto ourselves. And they are for our glory in this land of exile. But, but a heaven seeker works as to the Lord, knowing from whom he truly receives his reward. See, it's very practical. Let's consider our family. In verses 18 through 21 of chapter 3, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So wives submit to husbands, husbands love their wives, children obey their parents. Not not so much because husbands are so honorable or, or wives so lovable, but because it's pleasing to the Lord. Family relationships are difficult. And when our hearts and our affections are set on the world, our family lives will deteriorate. Picture a child with sub- subpar parents. I think that includes all of us in some sense. The natural thing for that child to do would be to disobey, to disregard his parents and not honor them because they're not worthy of honor. 
and they may not be. But the child seeking things that are above where Christ in is honors his parents because he desires to honor and please the Lord. Honor and love based on merit will, will inevitably lead to a, a tit-for-tat kind of relationship based on conditional love. But in seeking that which is above, we transcend all that because God is truly worthy of honor and love. Another sphere here, take the church. In chapter 3, 9 through 11, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. (coughs) Michael Horton says that a church is not a group of friends you've picked. It's a group of brothers and sisters God has picked for you. When we seek that which is earthly, we seek a group of people that looks like us, that acts like us, that thinks like us. But when we seek that which is above, we begin to adore the assembly of the saints, composed of every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. And we love the church with all of her warts because we love Christ and because Christ loves his bride. And now another sphere is very simply all of life. He says in verse 17, And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to the Father through Him. The earthbound heart does everything in the name of self, the glory of self, the renown of self, the comfort of self. But the one who seeks that which is above seeks the glory and the renown of Christ. The mind that is set on earthly things is never really happy, but the mind that is set above recognizes that every good thing comes from God above, and we are thankful. Now, there's a common objection to all this, and I hope what we've seen here sweeps the leg of that objection, and the objection is that we can become so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. But it's clear from this that heavenly-mindedness bears the fruit of God in life in all society. And in fact, heavenly-mindedness is that which binds society together. And and not only that, but if, if we're not a little weird, we're missing something. 1 John 3, 1 says that the reason the world does not know us is because it didn't know Him. Think carefully for a moment about the message I'm preaching. It's very, very strange. It seems normal to us because we're familiar with it, but it is outright unusual. I'm saying the God who created the universe came to earth to become a man, and so that by believing him we can share united in his experiences. Because this man was dead and raised from the dead, and we have died and have been raised with him. And because he went up to, into heaven to sit on the throne beside God, his Father, that, that's where we are, too, in an ultimate sense. That, that is very strange, is it not? And, and the conclusion is that we are a people in exile, and our real home is this place, this heavenly place where this man is. 
I'd say it again. If the world doesn't find something a bit odd about this message, we're not doing something right. So the danger, as far as I can tell, is not that we'll become so heavenly-minded that we're of no earthly good, but that we are so earthly-minded that we are no, of no heavenly good. Which in turn means that we will be no earthly good either. Here's one of my favorite quotes. I've shared it with you before from John Piper. He says, Yes, I know it is possible to be so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly use. My problem is I've never met one of those people. <laughs> and I suspect if I met one, the problem would be that his mind is full, not full of the glories of heaven, but that, it is, that his mind is empty and his mouth full of platitudes. I suspect for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. <clears throat> so the second step in living out our heavenly citizenship during our exile is to think like an exile. It's like me living in the big city, longing for the mountains, or, or like the people of God in Babylon who called curses down upon themselves if they should forget their homeland. Let us seek that which is above, where Christ, who is our life, is. Now the reality remains that there's still a gap. We're still here. We're still exiles, and we're not home yet. But there will come a day when our faith will be sight. Jesus will return, and we won't struggle anymore, limping between two opinions. We will see him as he is, and we will be like him. Which is our third and final way to, to live out our heavenly citizenship during our exile, is, is hope in your homecoming. Hope in your homecoming. Judah was carried off into exile, but there came a day when King Cyrus of Persia let them go home, and they got to rebuild the temple, and they got to rebuild the walls. There will come a day when we will get to leave the land of our exile behind forever, and we will finally enter into Zion. He says in verse 4, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And that knowledge that there is a homecoming in our future uh, dramatically impacts the way we live as strangers and exiles now. This is why, as most of you know, my, one of my favorite verses is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, which says, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope fully on that day. And the reason it's so impactful to me is because... You live for what you hope for. Hope goes hand in hand with setting our minds on things that are above. It will change every detail of the way we live our lives. If my hope is set on things of earth, if I'm hoping in security and comfort and ease or the adoration of other people, if that's my hope, that's what I'll live for. If that's my rescue from the difficulties of this life, then that is what I will put my pursuits toward. But a hope set on glory in Christ when he appears, that's the kind of hope that undergirded the martyrs. This life in this world is not all there is to live for. And we do have a better home, a glorious home, and a future homecoming that is certain. 
And that homecoming enables us to live the life of an exile whose citizenship is not here but in heaven. Hebrews 11:13-16 speaking of the patriarchs all all of them died in faith not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out they would have had opportunity to return but as it is they desire a better country that is a heavenly one Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for us a city, and we eagerly await with expectation the day when we will enter into that city. I'll close with uh, C.S. Lewis. A continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave this present world as it is. If you read the history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set foot the the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. Amen.